0: Welcome everyone, I am Bob Borzawalker, the Director of the Respect Life Office for the Archdiocese of Cincinnati, and this is our video podcast series that we call Being Pro Life. Each month we discuss a different topic in the Respect Life arena, we'll hear a personal story from someone deeply affected by that issue, and finally, we'll share ways that you can get involved. But this month, we're going to talk with past award winners of the Archdiocese of Cincinnati Respect Life award. And this week, we're talking with Sue Wilkie and Allen, one of our initial award winners in 2014. Sue, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.
0: All right. So Sue, I have to start though with Wilkie in your name. All the listeners in the Cincinnati area, at least, are going to want to know if you're related, what are you connected with Dr. Jack Wilkie, the well-known pro-life advocate here in Cincinnati and founder of Greater Cincinnati Right to Life. So what is your connection with him?
1: He is my uncle, was my uncle, my dad's brother. And so our growing up was highly influenced after Roe v. Wade, particularly when they got involved, uh, all the family gatherings involved a lot of pro-life discussion and a lot of discussion of things they were doing. That was mostly among the adults and I was a young teenager at the time, but we were all very aware of the issue and that it was very critical to the parents. It kind of guided us in a general sense of understanding the sanctity of human life from there
0: going forward. You were a teen at this time in the early seventies when Roe v. Wade is being decided and you know that your aunt and uncle are very involved in this movement. And this had a big influence apparently. So then what happened? What did you ended up doing in life that was affected by all those adult discussions?
1: Well, it kind of got put on hold through college and early marriage and having kids and all of that. But as my kids got to a manageable age, young teenagers, I, I knew I was looking for something. And it, it's just one of those, you have conversations with people. Somebody mentioned to me, Pregnancy Center East. And I don't know if I'm specifically looking for a pro-life outlet, but that one kind of hit me as, oh, I should check that out. So in 2003, I joined them as a client at a volunteer, and it was an amazing experience. I volunteered there from 2003 to 2009, and then in 2009, I actually joined the staff as the office manager, and I worked there through 2014. And then just to follow through on the Princeton Center East connection, which I'm still very connected to, I became an advisory board member. And then... Shortly after that, I was asked to become a trustee. They're two separate parts of the board. And now I'm on the executive committee taking the minutes for the the meetings every month. So it's an organization I just have an amazing amount of respect for.
0: Pregnancy Center East, if our listeners don't know, it's one of the very well-respected pregnancy centers that we have in the Archdiocese of Cincinnati. Laura Curran is currently the executive director. So that was pretty influential, Pregnancy Center East. And then you found some other talents and your writing and research. That had a lot to do with why you were nominated in 2014. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: We realized in 2005, my husband really had this idea that since we were in town, which we hadn't been, I grew up in Columbus and down here for him to take a job with Procter & Gamble. And now we were in Cincinnati near Uncle Jack, and I have an engineering background. So my experience was in research and in industry. I always loved Research part and problem solving and just following that technical training. We went to Uncle Jack and said, hey, is there anything I can do for you as a volunteer to help your organization? And they came up with a project for me. And Bradley Mattis is the co-founder with Uncle Jack. And they came up with a project where I could analyze the demographics around the Planned Parenthood surgical abortion facilities. It was kind of a real basic using census data. And I came up with my first article, which was then is published in their connector. And this was all through Life Issues Institute that I did all of the research and articles. And it said 60% of the surgical facilities were in minority neighborhoods. Then I continued on doing articles and research on different subjects, like the abortion pill, Oregon's assisted suicide law tax dollars in the abortion industry, several more. And then in 2011, I started a new version of the Planned Parenthood abortion facility demographics with a whole different, much more detailed version of that. So I took all of the current 2010 facilities that were just surgical abortions, draw a two-mile radius around all of the area around the Planned Parenthood, and within those, there were blocks of census data called census tracks, and they kind of were, were in neighborhood form. Not exactly, but that was the general idea of the census tracts. I found the percentages of Black residents, the percentage of Hispanic residents, around 162 Planned Parenthood facilities. In most of the areas, there were anywhere from five to 100 Census tracks. So it took about a year to do all of that analysis. So the end result, which was the one that has been used a lot in the pro life talking points, you might say, is 79% of Planned Parenthood surgical abortion facilities are located within walking distance of minority neighborhoods. Of course, it came out with an article in 2012 to support the research. But what was really impactful too was that Life Issues Institute developed a website. So that each Planned Parenthood area had a map that showed the census tracts, and they were color-coded so you could see which ones had high percentages of minorities surrounding that Planned Parenthood and two miles walking distance. So you could click on the map. It's at Protecting Black Life. It's still there. You can still find it. And you could click on any individual location and see how the demographics indicated this targeting of minorities by okay. Planned
0: Parenthood. I consider that a pretty, at least in our world anyway, a pretty well-known fact. You're the researcher that made that known, or there's been a lot of others at the same time?
1: That particular statistic was mine, and pro-life leaders that I have met, they knew it. They've known it for a long, long time. It wasn't any unique idea of mine or Life Issues Institute. It's been known. They didn't have real data behind it. They're very grateful to have the data to prove that this is what's happening.
0: All of those studies you've mentioned are of interest to me. You said you did a study on the abortion pill.
1: Yes, it was focused on how it was used to harm women. Like I had several instances of where primarily the father, but not in every case, would slip it into the drink. You know, many women have died, From the pill, not as much lately, but many have died from taking that pill because of, I think there was a certain infection that was occurring that they didn't have a handle on. Then beyond that, the problem was other people could get a hold of at least one part. It's a two-part pill right? and often cause an abortion without the woman knowing it.
0: Now, I was not aware of that. So was this a time when you could buy the pill over the counter or something and now it is prescribed or...
1: No, but one of the pills is a common prescription medicine.
0: The first one blocks estrogen, the placenta to separate, I guess, so that the baby starves to death, as I understand basically. It, basically.
1: Yes. And the um, second drug was used for, I think, ulcers.
0: The second pill then causes the contractions that expels the baby. And you could only take the second one and expel the baby alive, as horrendously awful as that is.
1: People were getting hold of the second drug. Because it was a prescription drug, and giving it to the women, and then lots of times that would cause them to have an abortion. There are different ways that it was done, but it was still prescription. But the, you know, there were ways to get There's it else. out wow. of wow. the country.
0: What years were you talking about that this was happening?
1: I believe it was around two thousand eight.
0: Okay, in twenty twenty, I'm led to understand that that type of abortion is just skyrocketing. It's so much yes. easier for the abortion industry. So, and you had another article, you you said you did a little bit on Oregon's assisted suicide. What was that study about?
1: I was talking about all the ways in which it wasn't working, how elderly people would feel compelled to ask for it because they didn't want to be a burden to their families. Right. Just a lot of the disadvantages of it. That particular article was chosen, published in another book that had pros and cons for assisted suicide.
0: Okay. So that book you're talking about, so you have an article in a book called Assisted Suicide, Current Controversies, written by Noel Marino. I don't know if you recommend that book or not necessarily but you do have an article on the con side, I'm sure, right? Yes. (laughs) In that book. So if someone wants to look it up, it's called Assisted Suicide Current Controversies. We had that topic, of course, on this podcast before. One of the things that people don't realize I had to do with insurance. When a state legalizes assisted suicide and it becomes literally a medical treatment, then it would be natural. And we're not trying to paint insurance companies is evil at all. But if it's a legal option, then an insurance company is going to want to try to push people to use the cheaper options for medical treatment.
1: Absolutely. And
0: it's it's simple math, it's simple economics. So anyway, and that really does happen that sometimes people have some kind of a treatable illness. And if one of the Treatments is to kill yourself because if you don't have treatment, you would die from it. That fits the medical criteria, then people are going to push that, and so that and that was happening. People who had otherwise terminal but treatable illnesses were being pushed to kill themselves, and so that was. It's not only about the cases of of someone who has a very serious, untreatable, terminal illness that's very painful and they can't find you know relief from the pain. That's always the picture that is painted. But that case apparently is pretty rare. The stats that I am aware of, of people who have chosen assisted suicide, the number one reason is not, the top five reasons are not pain that can't be treated. It is not wanting to be a burden
1: mm-hmm.
0: and a loss of autonomy, right? These things with counseling or with, with family support can usually be helped. Putting aside Catholic truth and belief about life. It's, it's embracing despair instead of hope. Anyway, so I, I've done a lot of talking. Is that some of the
1: things that you discovered? I believe that was part of it. It was also talked about the doctors. They needed a doctor's referral, but right. didn't have to be a family doctor. They could just go to a doctor who was willing to do it. So there was really not necessarily any kind of relationship involved. Right. One of the conclusions is legalized assisted suicide can lead to legalized euthanasia as we have seen in the Netherlands. Right. It's all a part of the whole idea of dehumanizing that we see with abortion and all the life issues that we're concerned about. When you don't see life as a wonderful gift, even in the hard times and that it's easier to get rid of a person who is a burden or get rid of yourself, That's a very bad road, as we know.
0: Right. And people hate to use the term slippery slope, but you're right. It starts with thinking of the case of someone who has a terminal illness that doesn't have treatment, that is in pain, doesn't want to live anymore. It starts there. And then you have people who have dementia or can't make that decision for themselves. And well, if you've accepted the first stage then we have to help you would use the word perhaps help someone who can't make that decision but we all know if we were in that position we wouldn't want to live and then children who have serious disabilities that can't speak for themselves well we should just help them by not having them suffer in this life anymore i mean it just you're right it just turns into euthanasia
1: right it's the whole idea behind abortions for fetal anomalies right the assumption is that child is not going to have a life worth living even though we know as Catholics that life is a gift from God. And if God wills you to be conceived and born, there's a reason. God has a purpose for every individual. And so many lives have been cut off by our that we have no idea who we've lost that could have been critical to our world.
0: Right. God gives life and life, all life has value. Whether everybody sees it or not, there are so many different levels of that. There are stories of people who were believed in utero was going to be severely disabled and didn't end up being nearly as disabled as they thought. There's those stories, right? And what they have done in their lives. And there's also, though, stories of people who have overcome great disabilities and done incredible things. There's that. But then there's also those that they're severely disabled and they didn't overcome come anything and they have to be cared for and then the families that cared for them and the love that they learned from that and what they feel like they learned from that from that person that can't do much more than smile and show a little bit of gratitude for being cared for but how that has impacted the caregivers all life has value that life and what they can how they can affect the lives around them you throw that out of our society and then all kinds of things happen assisted suicide, abortion, euthanasia. I mean, it just, you know, the list goes on and on. Those were three. Abortion centers are typically target minorities that the abortion pill, uh, there was a different take, how easily that could be abused. I suppose that was that was a little while ago. You could talk about different things about the pill today, but then assisted suicide. Other Other interesting topics that you did research uh, on?
1: I did one kind of related about the percentage of prenatally diagnosed Children with Down syndrome. What percentage of those were aborted? And it was it varied. But it was in the eighty to ninety percent range at that time. Again, that was probably before two thousand ten.
0: In the United States.
1: No, well, this was okay. worldwide. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Related to that, uh, another article I did was on the March Times and how they were in one instance in England they were touting their success and how many Down syndrome babies had been aborted to prevent the birth of babies with Down syndrome, which their goal has always been to help children with disabilities. That's how most of us know them and be of of aid to them that way. And they do a great job of that. But another piece of their mission is to prevent the birth of babies with these disabilities. But at the time, they were only recommending prenatal diagnosis or testing of women 35 for that. And most of the Down syndrome babies at the time were being born to women younger than that because they weren't having that prenatal diagnosis. I remember that they were intending to reduce that recommendation to less than 35. And I don't know what all the reasons are. Obviously, there's a lot of health reasons to do that too, for pregnant women. But the downside of it would be then they would be finding these Down syndrome babies. And, and remember, most of the Down syndrome testing is just blood markers. So they may say you are likely to have a Down syndrome or you're not. And so a lot of people would abort based on just those blood markers. They could go on further to have, you know, in their tests like uh, amniocentesis, and then they get a better chromosomal reading of what was going on. But we had friends who were not particularly pro-life or anti-pro-life. They were told, life based on the blood markers, that their second child was possibly going to have Down syndrome. And they really did consider having an abortion. And my husband worked with the father and had a lot of conversations with him and helped him to understand that that wasn't necessarily the best answer. And they went on to have the baby, and he was perfectly fine. He didn't right. have Down syndrome. So they, they were always grateful to Bob for having that conversation with them because he was obviously pro-life and taught them some things that they really weren't thinking about or aware of at the time.
0: right, there's so many sides to that. First of all, the diagnosis could be wrong, but even if yes. it's right, you don't kill a child for having a disability.
1: There was a study done by a doctor at the time I was writing my article on Down syndrome, and he found that parents who were taken aside and given information about life with Down syndrome, possibly meeting others who had Down syndrome children, that made a huge difference in their decision to, to go forward with the pregnancy. But a lot of doctors at that time would just say, looks like you have a Down baby. I think your best option is to abort. And people would just go with that, not knowing better, really. That was a very sad situation to see how it's so easy to help people get past it and how it wasn't being done.
0: I feel like it was 2018 when the Witherbrand Iceland in particular got really big news about how they pretty much said that they have eliminated Down syndrome in their country. And it wasn't because of some medical breakthrough or something, it was because of pre-diagnosis and abortion. Such a horrible message. So are you working on a research project right now that can't talk about? Oh, well,
1: I'm, I'm currently, I finished up another set of research about a year and a half ago, the same Planned Parenthood areas. But this time I did it by county in the sense that I took the 30 counties that had the highest numbers of abortions in the United States. And which of course is what you'd expect New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, some you wouldn't necessarily expect, but the counties had high numbers of abortions compared to the rest of the country. This was 30 counties out of 3,013, and they accounted for 30% of all abortions in the United States. They also have relatively high numbers of minorities. Most of them were fairly big cities. So I was looking at them as a group and found many statistics relative to that, that my real thought on it was as much as I would, you know, we should focus on abortion in every city, in every locality, in every person, that if we could even make a dent in those top 30 counties, what a difference that would make. That has been published. My general results were published in the fall and I have other pieces in it. One I would really like to do that hasn't been done yet I did it by zip code in these counties, these areas. I I went five miles out on each this time because I found that I felt that Planned Parenthood was looking farther out than two miles. That was a that was a good place to start because it was walking distance. But I felt that they're looking at the demographics. They know exactly what they're doing. And so I felt like five miles was a little more comprehensive, especially in the big cities. So I did it by zip code and I came up with a list of high-risk zip codes that were within five miles of Planned Parenthood, and had high levels of minorities in them. Because you can't, in most cities and states and counties, you can't get abortion data by zip code. Some you can. It's not universal. So you don't know exactly what the abortion rate is in most zip codes. But with Black abortions being in the 35 to 40 percent range of all abortions, and they're 12, 13 percent of the population, you know that something's going on there. And so we know they're at higher risk and so that that was the whole point of making this high risk zip code list what i'm going to do with it and you know it isn't published yet it hasn't sent out i'm not really sure quite yet what we're going to do with that but i also as part of that study looked at colleges college students are also heavily targeted because as students for life will tell you that about 80% of them are within 5 miles of a college that would have women basically most of these cities had Many many universities and colleges in that range. That is the obviously the age group that is most vulnerable, from 20 to 25, basically. So anyway, I have a lot of data on that that's not put in a form that I'm going to have published. But the part right. 30 counties that one, that's out there.
0: Do you think that targeting of of minority neighborhoods has more to do with actually racism, not wanting more minority babies, or does it have more to do with, it's just economics. It's more likely to be a poor neighborhood. It's more likely to be a neighborhood where it's easier to convince women you cannot raise this child. You need to have an abortion.
1: I do believe that in Margaret Sanger's mind, where all this started, it certainly was uh, minimizing the minorities. How far that carried into Parenthood's current philosophy, it's hard to know, but I think that it's about the money for them. Something like 60% of their clinic income is from abortions, even though they would say it's only 3% of their right.
0: They say it's like 2.5% or something like that.
1: Yes. It, it that's, depends on how you count. Exactly. They're counting every pill pack as a service, right. but higher abortion is one thing. That type of accounting is what they're doing. So we know that it's a large part of their income. It's a money maker for them. They know for whatever reason, whether it's been caused by them or because there are some other socioeconomic things at play, they know that that's where they're going to be able to find the most vulnerable women. Same with colleges and induce them into having abortions. My personal feeling is they've done a lot of this with artificial. And this is where being in the neighborhood really matters. People drive by Planned Parenthood. It becomes a very familiar place. And girls go there because they don't really have another place to go or don't know of another place to go, which unfortunately, there are places they don't know what's available. But Planned Parenthood is known for one thing to them, at least, and that's birth control. They go there they're encouraged to go there by being near high schools and colleges. So they're encouraged to start on contraception. And I believe 54% of women who've had abortions say they were using contraception within the month of getting pregnant. So they also know that it fails regularly. So for them, getting these women hooked on any type of contraception is the first step in the door. Then when it does fail, as it often does, that's who they go back to. And they've got all the words, They've got all the propaganda to help women believe that this somehow is the better choice for them. And that's why pregnancy centers are so critical because pregnancy centers are out there providing a different message and offering free pregnancy tests and ultrasounds and showing women the possibilities as opposed to telling them they can't do it. A lot of women, obviously, who get abortions are poor. But my opinion is, why should Planned Parenthood or anyone else take the attitude that they don't deserve more? Because Planned Parenthood makes money off abortions. Their motives are clearly not pure. They never will be. It's an evil act. I believe being in the neighborhoods has been an influence. I don't know how much, but I think they're there for a reason because they can be more influential there.
0: And you and I both know, you already started to touch on it, that pregnancy care centers are painted by the pro-choice crowd as pretend medical shops that have no interest in taking care of women. But my goodness, if if you walk in one, that's exactly what they do. They care about the woman. They empower women. Abortion doesn't empower women. Helping a woman to understand, hey, we're with you and you can do this. Whether it's raising the baby or placing the child for adoption, either one of them is a very courageous, empowering choice. And helping women to do that, that's the women's rights thing. You know, that's the message that young women need to have. And that's what they do at pregnancy Care Centers. And they care about the women and the baby. Okay, well, very good. So all or at least many, anyway, of the articles you mentioned, we can post on the website, as always, at www.catholicaoc.org. You'll be able to find them there that she talked about. All right, well, thank you so much. Sue for spending some time with us today, sharing a thank you for the research that you've done, as well as sharing with us what you've done, because clearly you've been a mover and a shaker there and helping to educate people about what's been going on and these life issues. In addition to just being right there on the ground and volunteering your work with pregnancy center East. So thank you for spending time on the show with us today.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: I want to thank all our viewers and listeners for tuning in on this episode of our Being Pro-Life series. Head to the website to view more resources talked about in this episode at www.catholicauc.org/beingprolife. Thank you again for joining us today. I look forward to being with you next
1: time.